Hello, friends, and welcome to Beauty the Interviews, a podcast production of The Beautiful Project, a grassroots storytelling initiative that invites women to belong in the world with substance and with strength. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for this podcast and the founder of The Beautiful Project. In today's interview, we sit down with Kim. Kim is a woman who came to me precisely because of the project. She had heard about the work I was doing, and I had heard about the work she was doing, and we decided that a conversation was in order. Kim has a beautiful body story. She comes from an adopted family, a family with whom she shared very few physical characteristics, and she struggled to find a place to fit in that family. And then she moved on to a life of trying to find a place to fit, never really landing there and craving a tribe in her world. Because of this craving, Kim sought out a place to heal. And as is often the case, Kim's own pursuit of healing brings about the healing of people around her. Kim is a body worker. She is a woman who knows the power of compassionate touch because it is a singular act that has helped to bring tremendous healing in her life. It's a gift that she now shares with the world, and it's a gift that she shares with us today on the podcast. So let's drop in and have a listen to Kim. So this is my friend Kim, and Kim and I met um, a couple months ago now, probably, through a mutual friend. Uh, we had a very lovely lunch. This mutual friend had heard the interviews and had determined that I needed to sit down and meet Kim. And uh, so we had lunch, and about 10 minutes in, I was like, oh, I need Kim to interview. Um, so I'm excited that you're here with me, so thanks for saying yes. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome. <laughs> so Kim, um, she and I have had a conversation, but I and so I know a lot of, you know, the way that you can try to put a million things into an hour and a half uh, when you meet new people with whom you connect. And that's kind of what happened. So we put a lot of detail into a short period of time, but nothing really linear. So um, this is what I know about Kim. Kim is um, articulate and passionate and vocal. And uh, she loves body work. She's, She's a massage therapist. Is that the title you use? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure if you used like another title of any sort. So she's a massage therapist who loves body work and we ha- and we're going to get into that today and talk a little bit about what she loves about it and what she um and how it brings healing to her and to other people and why it's important. Uh I know that she has kids and she's a wife and I know that she has a story uh about her body and about beauty and about belonging. So we're just going to launch right into that. So Kim, yes. If you would be willing, will you tell me about the first time you realized that your body was different from other bodies? Uh, it was really funny because, um, one, I didn't look like any other kids in the neighborhood, which was great because we had a really diverse neighborhood that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And my next door neighbors um, were kind of your stereotypical white kids next door. They had three daughters, and they did dance recitals and everything else. And so it was funny. Um we were playing on the swing set, and I remember we were all sitting in the swings, and my um, my girlfriend looked at me, and she goes, oh, your thighs are touching on the swing. Mm. And I looked at her, and I was like, what? What in the world? You know, and so, of course, you know, we go out and play, and I, 
you know, we were just goofing off, and I stopped, and I looked down, and I was like, huh. And I looked at her legs, and I was like, oh, there's something different. Yeah. And it was, that was, like, my really first, like, indication of, like, oh, my body is different. And being adopted, you know, I knew I looked completely different than the rest of my family. Like, you know, I looked at all the women that were now my family, and I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, we are not the same. Mm -hmm. We have a little tiny petite Polish lady, and then there's me. And I kept getting told growing up, oh, well, you know, you're just solid, you're thick, you're, you know, there's a lot to you. And I'm like, is that a bad thing? I was just going to ask, so that moment of the differentiation between your friend's thighs and your thighs, when you understood it, do you remember interpreting it as just different or different and bad? It was such a weird question mark. It was like this huge hanging question mark. You weren't like, sure what to yeah, do with it. I didn't know yeah. how to put it because nobody looked like me. How did that impact? So realizing that you're different than the people around you um, and then how that translates, right? So for you, did it translate into, uh, like, for, so for me, it translated into uh, I wanted I would do just about anything to just be, I, I didn't want to be um, visible in the group of friends. that I, So I was in a popular group of friends and that was important to me. That was some sort of a level of achievement. Um, but I also didn't want, I also knew that I was like, this is nuts, but it's true. I knew that I was like at the lower end of that spectrum of, you know, like I was sort of the pity, Oh. the, the oh. pity inclusion, oh. right? Now, it's funny. If you ask these same women today, they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but perception's everything, you know, yes. seventh grade. So um, I was like the person that they let in that didn't really look like everybody else, but they had to extend an invitation to maybe... I'm like, I was like the token minority, like the frizzy-haired fat kid. <laughs> I, was, I was the token. Now, again, let me reiterate, because I've interviewed some of, the, some of those women for this podcast, and they're like, what is your deal? That is not what was happening. So... I'm curious how then that impacted your... So that's how it impacted my sense of belonging. I felt like the ugly ducking, duckling in the group of popular kids because I'd worked to be funny and smart and likable right? in order to be included. Yeah, and inadvertently, I, I thought if I had a sense of humor or if I worked harder at being different, mm-hmm. then I could be the oddball that fit in. Oh. The popular group. Yeah. And, like, just garnish attention yeah. from said popular group. And what ended up happening was I was the person that was, like, the office runner. Mm. So I made good, and I played Switzerland very well yeah. between all the groups. So, like, I knew the jocks mm-hmm. and barely tolerated them. Mm. <laughs> I, I knew the nerds and understood them and was just like, hey, my peeps. My people, yeah. <laughs> and then at the same time, like, I... I did and didn't want to be with the popular girls because I really didn't, um, I didn't get this cattiness. I didn't get mm-hmm. this, um, oh, we all have to look cookie hider. Yeah. And wear the same clothes. There was no way with my thick thighs I was going to wear those tapered jeans mm-hmm. that you French cuffed and put somehow the leg warmers over. I just, like, it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And the blue eyeliner and stuff didn't translate from blonde to dark. Right. And so, um... I, I thought 
thought that by getting more involved like with student council or mm-hmm. like somehow that gave me more power and more visibility mm-hmm. and made me more of a group and what ended up happening like even through high school was I really didn't necessarily have a group I just Switzerland floated <laughs> between everybody and uh, I did that feel good how'd that feel lonely yeah I was gonna guess it because in the absence of a uh, true group, right? Yeah, you can't, you're you're kind of trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody. Yeah, so there was yeah. like no true hundred percent identity, and at the same time, like it was interesting because um, then I fell into a couple of groups where, um, like, I wanted to do sports, but I really didn't want to be a part of like that mindset. Mm-hmm. of like, again, blindly following the lemurs. Yep. And at that time, you know, I, again, um, at home was told over and over again, don't objectify your body, you know, um, honor your body, don't show it off, the whole nine yards. And What did they mean by honor? So I say, I talk a lot about honoring your body, but I talk about it in a sense of like, um, listen to it when it's hungry, so this was more in the line of modesty. Got it. And not showing, okay. um, like showing appropriately your body to the outside world. Got it. Instead of, um, as you were saying, like honoring how it feels, yeah. what feels right to it. Um, does this align with yeah. kind of sensation? And so, um, again, it became this, oh, maybe, you know, you shouldn't be eating that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not honoring, you know, how you're going to end up looking if you continue to eat like this. And you have to understand, my parents um, were mildly crunchy. They were mildly hippie-ish in the sense that, you know, we always had a garden. And the joke is that, you know, you ate salad three times a day. (laughs) You know? Oh, wow. It was very healthy. You know, my mom tried to pass off carob chips Mm. on us. That the most foul, revolting thing ever. I was like... Give us the fat. <laughs> I remember carob. Oh my god, my mom used to make. She used to. She used to have carob cookies or some yeah. nasty disaster. Of, it was ridiculous. But you do know, they still yeah, use carob? People yeah, still use carob. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the crunchy it's people. I'm a crunchy person, but I don't like for food more now. If you know you got a serious food intolerance, you're gonna love carob. And oh I'm yeah. Like I just can't get past the lack of joy. There's no joy in it. <laughs> I love that you just said that. I can't get past the lack of joy in carob. That's so beautiful. Yes. But then at the same time, I kept being told, you know, if you're not careful and you keep eating all of them chips or you keep eating all of them sandwiches or those potatoes, you know, you're going to get thick. Did they ever use the word fat? Or was it, th- was it always thick? It was always some kind of other adjective. I'm curious. My, uh, you know? my, my mom had, my mom would always say um, chunky or... Yeah. Heavy set. That's another one. Heavy set. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so it was so funny because then um, at that time too, um, my mom had has two younger sisters and they each had kids, um, but it was the middle sister that had another daughter. And she's like, look, you know, um, you don't want to get thick like this aunt. Mm. Or, you know, you don't want to get as heavy. As heavy, yeah. You know, because look at their eating habits, and then look how we're eating it. And clearly, across the board, every day into my son's Sunday, my family was definitely more the crunchy healthy. Yeah. We, you know, we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't indulge in, like, white bread. I don't, I cannot tell you if I've ever seen white bread in my parents' house other than for, like, maybe garlic bread. Wow. 
and that was it. So, I mean, like, you know, they were the epitome of what a true, healthy, happy, crunchy family yeah. would be. And so that didn't translate well when um, I started getting more curves and mm-hmm. more thickness and mm-hmm. stuff. And um, when I got into powerlifting and I really started shifting and changing things, um, they're like, oh, be careful. Do you ever wonder, do you, did you ever want to ask them of what? Be careful of what? What's what's gonna happen? You know, I, sh- I you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you're you telling know. the story, because I I understand. There's a lot that's unspoken in the um, in the silence after the statement, right? And and I can translate it. You know, be careful because you don't want to get fat because fat is bad and shameful, and that's really. I mean, that's ultimately. Right. But I think it'd be really fun to get people to actually just cough up the real cough it up, just yeah. say it. Well, and sometimes they would because they would, and it was just really fascinating. They would point out some of the more um, heavier set, fluffier folks at church, and they're like, look at how they're struggling. Oh, this is an excess. Look how much they struggle. If they would just rein that in a little bit and, like, control or portion or what have you. Like, but I really want three bounties. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's yeah. there's significant psychological research that in that that uh, always points to the idea that if you um, restrict something, it is the most certain way to reinforce an obsession with the thing you've restricted. Oh. It's, it is literally how our brains are wired. And so the second you put something behind door number two, that's the only thing I want is door number two. That door number two yep. blows. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Instead of the alternate approach to that, I, because I'm not, I'm, you know, I sometimes people will ask me if I'm advocating eat whatever you want whenever you want. And actually I am, to be honest. I really am. Because what ends up happening is the obsession, once you do that, release that, the obsession with brownies. Like one of my things was um, uh, Little Debbie's because my, well, my narrative, and my mom and I had this conversation on the interview. My, narr- my The narrative I took away from childhood was that I wasn't allowed to have them. Now my mom says that I was. And I, I you know, we we do rewrite things. Like yeah. that's part of how this works. So I was like, that's fine. She's like, I don't let you have the whole box, right? Which I get that too. I also I was raised in the 80s and portion control and sugar was Satan oh, like it yeah. is now and all the things, right? So I get where she was coming from. Um and I completely validate the fact that she was making the best decision she had with the information she could with the information that she had. Hindsight Worst case scenario, I would have eaten a box of Little Debbie's. I might have done it twice, maybe three times. I don't know. I can guarantee at some point I would have gone, it's just Little Debbie. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So instead, I've taken this weird obsession with Little Debbie's into my adult life (laughs) because it was the behind the door number two thing. Absolutely. Um, And so now one of the things is that I have them in my house most of the time. The truth is if I want one, I can have one anytime I want one. And it's remarkable to me. How infrequently it even occurs to me. I have I don't fucking in the care. freezer a box of Cadbury eggs. Was that your thing? Oh my gosh, they they were yeah because they were like um, super ultra refined sugar. Yes. What are you doing? But it was it was interesting because um, as much as that was talked about, and I would get the the crazy eye or the side glance when I would go for an extra portion mm. at any of the picnics or mm-hmm. you know whatever. Um, it would come with, oh, well, I'm only going to just have this much. And so there was a lot of um, 
I think sometimes, and this is a lot of assuming probably on my part, a lot of um, issue with bodies and eating and what have you because of being adopted Mm -hmm. and knowing fully what my whole entire biological line looks like and who they were and stuff. And so um, because I knew that my body type was different and because I looked more like my mom, Mm -hmm. who was short, low to the ground, all boobs, all hips, you know, and that entire family looked the same, um, that somehow I shouldn't look like that because I'm a part of this family. Hmm. Talk about trying to swim upstream. I mean, you know, and it was yeah. like, you know, I didn't necessarily, you know, and I don't necessarily fault them because yeah. at the same time, you know, they, they wanted children. It was not something that was possible. So, um, but it was a really weird position mm-hmm. to be like, but here's pictures and this is here's pictures of people that look like you. Hmm. And this herd of animals looks like you and runs like you and what have you. And then there's this herd (laughs) who's not at all like this. And it doesn't, you know, you've got to reconcile and look and fit in with this over here. And so it was, um, it wasn't really until I got much older that I recognized that, you know, this was something that they were just trying to, I don't know, assimilate Mm -hmm. and process the fact that, you know, technically this child is not biologically ours and mm-hmm. does not look like us. Mm-hmm. And shit, she doesn't act like us either. I'm just curious. So then tell me kind of what Kim thought of Kim um, as you left high school and entered adulthood. How did all of this, all of that stuff, impact your sense of self, your embodiment, how you were approaching the world, however you want to take that? Um, I totally said screw it and jumped into the flames from the pot and decided to elope and got married Mm. at the age of um, 18. By 19, um, I was living out in California with a new husband. Mm -hmm. And And why do you think you did that? So I could get out of my parents' house. Yeah, belong somewhere else. And get out of that, um, get out of the community as a whole because I knew I didn't want to be with... Um, the people that I grew up with in school mm-hmm. and I didn't like the mindset and I thought where I lived was really small which is so funny now um, and I didn't align myself with everything that my parents were creating in, in their home and um, I just needed to be free to yeah. be exactly who I thought I wanted to be and so getting married seemed like the green card mm-hmm. to just go ahead and do that. And then the first week I get out of the state and into my married life, I show up pregnant with my daughter. Mm. And talk about a complete, like, holy crap moment and stuff because now I'm creating this new human being that's going to be looking at me at the same way that I looked at my parents mm. and not knowing who I was, you know, again, in hindsight, I, I didn't know my mirror and from a hole in the wall mm-hmm. and here I'm creating a human and still trying to navigate this new relationship. You had your hands full mama. Yeah. So I liked 
to create chaos in my life. This is apparently what I do very effectively. And um, I I thought, well, screw it. We're doing this Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I knew vehemently that I was going to do everything possible to not parent the same way. Mm -hmm. And so I still struggled with um, who I was and what that really meant. Um, and it was funny because, um, shortly after I had my daughter, what I now know, I had postpartum Mm. depression Mm. because I just, my marriage and that relationship was not going and looking anything that what I had seen growing up because he came from a complete 360 different background Mm. and he had an expectation, um, of what everything should look like. It was this very Warden Jim Cleaver moment. Mm. And I was brought up in a house where if you didn't speak up, you got ran over. Mm-hmm. And in his house, you don't speak up. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a, that's a significant values clash. Yeah, it was yeah. huge. It was gigantically huge. And it was a very patriarchally based home that he came out of. Mm-hmm. And so I was an oldest child. He was an oldest child. And it was just like Clash of the Titans. And um, it was interesting because the next thing you know, it landed me in front of a therapist who said, you know, I want you to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And it was at that point that I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, you spend too much time obsessing about food. Mm. And it was interesting because um, right about that same time, my biological mom had come out to meet my daughter, my husband, Mm. and really form a bond between she and I. Mm-hmm. And I was hanging up her clothes, and I and it said size 16. And I was like, oh, thank God I'm not that big. Oh. Huh. I will never be that big. Yeah. And it was so interesting because I had also recognized and understood that I had a better relationship with food than I did with the people in my life. Mm. And I bonded it in new food. I knew what food could do for me. I knew what I could do with food and, 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 and. But I didn't think it was an Overeaters Anonymous thing. I took refuge in food. It was my savior. Yeah, predictable and safe yeah. and warm. and I knew what I could do with it. It was malleable. It, yeah. it was just like, it didn't talk back to me. It said, I love you. <laughs> it said, I love you. <laughs> it said, how's it going, buddy? And it was interesting because I fell into a culture in while I was in California of um, folks that were like, I love you. Have you eaten? Come sit down. Look what I've made. And I was like, what is this? Right, because you came from a, restri- a place of re- restriction. Yeah, you didn't walk into the house and nobody offered you a plate of food and said, here, sit down. You need to eat. You know, and so it was really wild to come into a Filipino community who was just like, I love you. Come on, sit down. You've eaten. Yes? No? You're going to eat now. And it was like, no, but I just ate five minutes ago. No, 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 no. You're like, okay, fine. I'm like, never mind. I love you. This is great. (laughs) Give me more of that. And and it was interesting because then it became my solace. Mm -hmm. Um, So you went to OA? Did you go to OA? Overeaters Anonymous? No. You didn't go? You just, he just said Because I found it so offensive to my brain. Yeah. Because I didn't feel like I fit, fit that bill. Like, what What would that bill be? Tell me what that... Um, that food controlled me. Oh, got it. Okay. Like, in my mind, that's really what Overeaters Anonymous... Like, I blindly was putting food, and I was like, no, I'm consciously It's choosing. intentional, yeah. This is... That... Those fish tacos are fucking amazing. 
Those fish tacos are fucking amazing. Yes. I'm gonna have, I am going to purposely go down to Korea Shores and go to that man's cart because who knew about fish tacos? It just put lime on there. Yes, put queso <laughs> on that. My God, that's magical. And I'm looking at my daughter and I'm like, you want fish tacos? <laughs> like, this is the bestest ever. And then, you know, and it was like, no, over in Universe Anonymous. So my brain was just like, it's this blind shoving food mm-hmm. in your mouth. Like, let's just do something to kill your time. And oh, it's right there. And just, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I'm definitely choosing those flavors. I'm definitely like, this is amazing. And I didn't take in consideration that it was a preoccupation on what are we going to have for dinner. In my mind, I was logically um, doing it because I had a family to feed. Mm -hmm. So how did the, um, so from a restrictive environment, generally when we move from restrictive to permissive, that impacts our body size and shape. Oh, I became definitely fluffier. Yeah. All of a sudden there was no thigh gap. There was no size nine ten, mm-hmm. you know, and then reconciling what my body was like after having a C-section and like changing. And I saw the pictures of mm-hmm. myself and that's when the pictures really stopped happening mm-hmm. with me and them and me being behind the camera more than in front of the camera because I was like, oh. were you ashamed of your body? Of how your body was changing? Yeah. And, yeah. and surprised. I was like, Ooh, where did, where did, where did nine ten go? We're, we're, it's just like it's just fairy like, dust in the night. Yeah. Trust me, I know. I do know that feeling. I always, I hear this from more. Every single woman I talk to goes, if I were as thin now as I was when I thought I was fat. True story. Oh my God. Yeah. Which tells me that the lens is always fucked up. It is not, it doesn't, the lens has to be fucked up all the time. If I'm coming to the same conclusion, regardless of the actual size of my body. Yeah. So it can't be that. It no. it has to be the lens then. <laughs> and it was so crazy. So um, I didn't slow down on really um, what I was eating or changing anything. Um, but at the same time, I know in a physical capacity, I was way more physically active mm-hmm. when my daughter was that young. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until after we moved here to the Quad Cities, um, that that changed. And I felt like the environment to just go to the beach and just walk for miles. Yeah, we don't have that. You know, or go to um, a lake that had a really awesome paved trail Mm -hmm. and walk 10 miles, you know, kind of disappeared. And so went my freedom to Mm -hmm. do that, which was crazy because we've got the Mississippi and there's tons of everything. What have you? And at the yeah. same time, it was a total different environment. And they went into, again, not knowing anybody, which wasn't an issue totally, um, except um, I was, again, alone more with my husband at the time. So you moved here with your ex-husband? Yeah. Uh, when did you do that? Um, 19 years ago. Okay. Um, so you get here, you don't know anybody, you're, uh, is your family here? No, no, Chicagoland area. Chicagoland area. Yeah. Um, so what, well, what happens next? So I, at that point it really became blatantly obvious that my marriage was just a series of nuclear fallouts. Mm-hmm. That's, that was it. And I had a really awesome live-in roommate. Mm-hmm. and two kids in tow and um, I had spent all of the first few years in that marriage getting told that I was an embarrassment to be seen in public because I didn't go back down to what my 
pre-kid body was. So your husband is a fat shamer. Yeah. And so it, it was interesting. Um, when the divorce came through, a lot of friends have said, oh, <laughs> look, girl, <laughs> when I lost my man and got in that divorce and stuff, I lost about 30 pounds. I'm like, oh, yeah, The man. divorce diet. <laughs> yes. The stress is going to shrink this. This is going to be awesome. You know, and I'm going to get this freedom and I'm, you know, I've got to figure out how to become attractive. Yeah. So I'm not alone. Yeah. So that I am not alone again. Um, and I can have possibly a better relationship than what I just got done with. So on some level you equate, on some level did you equate the size of your body with the trouble in your relationship? Yeah. How much would you say? Um, probably 85% or more because it meant safety and security. Oh, wow. There was, again, safety and security in that blanket of food. Sure. You know, because it was a protective function to a certain extent, because when you're fluffier, people don't pay as much focused attention on you. And mm-hmm. at the same time, it was like this fantastic body armor that, you know what, um, I can survive mm-hmm. somehow and such and um, feast or famine. So did you lose weight? Um, not tremendously. You know, I lost like a, like five or 10 pounds and stuff, but I wasn't, I was so stressed out Mm -hmm. that I was getting a couple hours of sleep because I was, I got into massage school, Mm -hmm. but I had to, I had to make the donuts. So I had to go work. So I worked third shift and I would drop off the kids at daycare or at preschool, pick them up, go drop them off at their dad's come back, change, go to school. As soon as I got off school, I'd change clothes again, go work third shift, get Jeez. get off, go pick up my kids, come back, drop them off at daycare, rinse, repeat, and go. Yeah. And I didn't have time to really focus on food or um, my body other than the fact that um, doing that much work and that much stress, I turned my adrenal glands into probably the size of dust mites. Right. And I was working on pure stress and adrenaline. And um, I got to a size 12. But it was really funny um, because, again, I, I fell into another group of friends that were, I love you. Let me feed you. Mm. Which was amazing. Where did you find those people? <laughs> of all things, while well, I was going to school at Palmer. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, it was a a really good solid group of non-trads you know we were older we yeah. had families so we weren't doing the atypical college mm-hmm. level activities mm-hmm. <laughs> and fun and so we had um, to deal with our stress we had barbecues mm. and it was a it was fantastic it was absolutely fantastic sure it was because yeah. you walked in and you automatically felt took care of yes you know let me feed you let me nourish you and the kids ran rampant, and it was this really fun communal group of, let me take care of you. And it was really interesting because not everybody was married, not everybody was a parent. Mm-hmm. It was just this tribe, commune of, dude, we know your grief. <laughs> we, we know the stressors that you're dealing with on the daily. Yeah. Here, this is our reprieve. So it sounds like literally every time you were literally fed by people, physically fed with food, right. 
you were also being fed by way of connection. So yeah. those two things for you are, they're tightly Very, woven together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because then um, I came across <laughs> rugby, of all things. Oh, cool. And... Um, it was the very, very first time that I felt validated in the body that I was mm. in at the time because um, not only was I at least a good solid 10 years older than every other woman that was on the field, mm-hmm. um, there was a place and a position for you to play regardless of what size and shape you were. Oh, uh, cool. I didn't know that about rugby. It was in. It only happened after a conversation with one of the girls from Iowa City who was actually working on her doctorate about women in violent sports. Oh. <laughs> and she was like, why is it that when we, in a violent sport, and like especially with rugby, that you mow somebody over and you stop for a split second and say, ooh, are you okay? Hmm. Look, she signed up to get mowed over. We're all signed up to get mowed over and just push each other around after a token ball. Look suck that up and let's just go and play this game and it was so funny because I was like she goes we can't get past that hard wire of nurture yeah be nice be nice treat everybody nice what are you doing that's part well you know (laughs) along with the be thin and be polite it's it's all yeah warm and fuzzy and sunshine and rainbows you know and it was hilarious and I'm like and you saw this complete pendulum swing to the other side where some of these women were just absolute turds. Oh, my God. You were like, dude, could you be a little more angry? Mm. Let's calm this down a little bit. We are not with pitchforks and flaming torches. Let's just, mm-hmm. you know. But it was so cool because it was so validating to be powerful and see what a group of women, regardless of their shape and size, could do as a whole. Like, to be in a scrum with seven other women and pile drive forward against another crowd doing the same thing, like, that brute force was just like, oh, let's beat our chest. The power of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is amazing. I'm just not mom. Oh, my God. This is, like, I am a powerful moving tool of a working hole. Oh, my God. Like, oh. I am a powerful moving tool of a working hole. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so good. It was amazing. It was so incredibly validating. I was like, every day, I was like, dude, I suck at playing rugby, but this is the shit. (laughs) And it was, you know, I had gotten criticized for putting myself in danger of being hurt or destroyed on the field by my family um, and people who didn't understand. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was like, you know, I'm working out for two to three hours, almost six days out of the week, and my body shape didn't change one iota. It didn't. I got actually heavier. Yep. And I stayed thick. Yep. I stayed curvy, and I still had this belly apron, and I felt powerful. Mm. And they didn't get it. And they were just like, Kim, you have no business doing this. You're going to destroy your body. You're going to get hurt. And then what's going to happen? You're not going to be able to take care of your family. Totally missing the point that for the first time, I had totally felt validated in the body that I was walking around in. And during that time, um, well, right after the divorce, like I said, I had done massage school. And I had only just started recognizing um, what emotions and touch meant. Hmm. Tell me more about that. um, 
sorry. <laughs> you don't have to be sorry. You can take all the time you need. Go put no worse leaves. <laughs> um, I learned what compassionate touch meant. When you had not experienced that before. I had, but not to the fullest capacity of what that meant. Yeah. Um, it hadn't, through the, my first marriage, it had not been um, about actual compassionate touch. Mm -hmm. It was a tool, a weapon, a way to um, manipulate mm -hmm. certain emotions and to elicit certain actions. Mm -hmm. And so um, sex was used as a, a tool of motivation. Mm -hmm. And... Um, to come across massage and realizing that touch could be healing blew my mind. Yeah, I imagine it did. Because that was a 360. Yeah. And to realize that um, a simple hand placement could totally unhinge somebody or totally heal somebody or bring them to a pace of quiet. Mm-hmm. And it totally intrigued my brain. I was just like, oh my gosh, the body is really this fascinating thing. And like, holy shit, did you know that there was backup systems to backup systems? And holy crap, if that, didn't, if that doesn't work, that backup system and the other backup system were working. Oh my God, this is great. Where was this all my life? Oh my God. And people are going to pay me. All right. Yeah. I'm like, bonus. Yeah. <laughs> and... It started that downward spiral for seven years of trying to learn more about the body, and um, I had saw massage as a vehicle to be able to earn money and still be available for my family, mm -hmm. and however that looked. Um, and I tried doing conventional punch-the-clock jobs and realized that that really didn't serve me mm -hmm. quite as much or satisfy me quite as much as massage did. And it wasn't until three years ago, almost four, um, that I really started realizing that most people aren't aware of their bodies. Mm -hmm. They choose not to be aware of their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and I recognized it in myself. Yeah. It was interesting. We would do certain um, massage technique seminars to keep our continuing education and our licensure. And this one um, was an abdominal class, solely abdominal class. And talk about, like, putting your soul out on a platter. Oh, God, saying, isn't Here, it? dissect this. Oh, you know, yeah. And if I've pulled over the course of 16 years all, all my different clients on, so do you touch your stomach? Mm -hmm. Do you feel yourself? And they're like, yeah, let's not be I'm like, no, no, beyond, not talking about beyond that. Beyond that, please. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> like, look, um, most of my clientele didn't even bother to wash their stomach or pay attention to their stomach, other than when they had to button up or put on pants or put on clothes and stuff and thought of it as an obstacle or a barrier. And it became more interesting when I had this three day abdominal class, of all things. And 
the instructor, I, w I thought he was off his rocker when he said, you are going to have a series of different emotions that may come from this and be prepared and hold the space for the people that you're working on during this class. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? I got out of the first day of class of being touched at least three or four times for like, you know, an hour of peace practically. And I was so angry. Angry. Oh my God, I was so angry. There was so much anger that I was like, dude, I thought I handled this. Mm. I did seven years of free, thank God, free therapy through colleges mm -hmm. that I thought I had handled and worked through all my stuff. And I came back and they had I, uh, what I thought was ridiculous. <laughs> At the seminar the next morning, they, the instructor said, okay, we're going to circle up and we're going we're gonna to share our experiences. I was like, we're going to do fucking circle time? Are you kidding me right now? I was like, I am like even now a continuance of angry because now I've got to share this shit. Right. I'm like, oh. And they came to me. I was like, dude, I couldn't be for, more removed from being angry and disturbed than ever before. And I was like, I thought therapy took care of this. I thought I was handling this. And I'm like, I'm thinking of all the people who put their hands on me in a non-compassionate, loving way. And I'm mad. And I'm so pissed. Yeah. And he looked and he goes, well, that's the first honest answer today. I'm like, and he just got kind of what I felt was cavalier. I was like, you shit. That was irresponsible. And the next thing I know, he comes up and gives me a hug. And I'm like, oh. Did oh. that make you cry? Uh, yeah. I would have wept. I it. Yeah. In a room of 25 people, I lost it. And of course, you know, half of them are yoga instructors and other massage therapists, and so they all start circling around. I'm like, no, uh, uh, no. <laughs> That's too many no, of too you. Too many touches, too many touches, no gentle <laughs> touches, get away. No, no, not so much. And I'm like, ah, claustrophobia, no, no, not so much. And then the next thing you know, on the last day, you want to talk about many hands of healing. The whole entire class participated in an entire body massage with me. Because they felt me working through this. And it was this most humbling and revealing, brutally honest moment to where all of a sudden I had all these people, complete strangers, offering this compassionate touch and this healing from a space of this is what we can offer other people mm. with no expectation of return mm -hmm. and that was huge yeah it sounds like it that was a before and after moment yeah life before and then life after yeah and yeah. I had gotten that from another seminar with Dooley Lomi because um it's, it's a Hawaiian traditional massage that, again, is not so much about the hands-on mm -hmm. as much as creating the space of let's let it all out there and let's heal this as a group, as a whole, as a community, mm -hmm. and how can you move forward in healing that. And I noticed with my clientele, they would keep saying words like, I didn't know this happened. Mm. I don't know where this came from. Mm. I was totally unaware about this. And why are why is it every time I'm on your table, I notice this? 
And I saw this disconnect happen over and over again. And um, late last year, I joined a group on Facebook um, by Ben Brown of These Hands Create. Hmm. And he said, we really need to create this environment that encourages people to recognize and be more aware of their body. Mm-hmm. And why aren't we having those conversations? Um, I had a husband relay that he was observing from the observation deck, um, his wife's hysterectomy, and it was the most violent thing he'd ever seen or experienced. Mm. And he said, I felt horrible and so um, not able to do anything for her in a snap of a moment. Mm. And he said, I couldn't help her. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to. I wanted to jump through that glass and tear this surgeon apart for what he was doing to my wife's body. Mm. And I'm like... And it really got me to thinking... Um, and having other conversations, yeah. <laughs> much with our friend, that led to this, um, how much we disassociate ourselves and disconnect ourselves from our bodies, and then all of a sudden we act surprised when our body shuts, shuts down right, and slows us down on purpose. And, and we act surprised like, oh, I don't know why that ever happened. Well, I think part of it is, from the from most of us, I, I have not sat with anybody yet who said, I was taught radical body trust. I was taught to be radically embodied as a child. Very not one. Very few. Like, I've come across very few, and yeah. I'm amazed by this. And I'm, like, waiting for them to levitate. Right. <laughs> well, you just said something really important. You just made a really important connection. You're waiting for them to levitate because there is this intrinsic sense in us that we go... We can feel it, that there's some wisdom in saying, oh, I'm supposed to be in this body. I'm, I belong in this body, you yeah. know? So when somebody proposes it as an idea, it has that whole, um, it rings true, like ancient wisdom that somebody's reminding us about that we'd forgotten because yeah. we've been told the literal polar opposite. We've been told control and manipulate your food. Make sure your movement outpaces what you put into your body. Right. Pay zero attention to anything below your head you're you're really just a consciousness yeah you can have emotions but don't reconcile them in relation to how it physically fuck no demonstrates no you know and it was it was so wild because again i until that group i really didn't fully realize Mm -hmm. how much we've kept disconnecting Mm. and how much you have how much my body and I had gone through that journey. Yeah. And I was like, God, we gotta really have that conversational journey. And and that's something that I, I'm having more meaningful conversations with my own clients where they're going, Oh, yeah, no, that you know what, now that you say that, that really didn't serve me. And it's like, yes. Have you have you watched people find freedom on your table from the things that they yeah. carry with them? Yeah. Yeah. And there's been other people, clients, who have felt that, and they only want to come back for that. And for a while, I thought that was selfish to say, well, come back for more. Schedule more for more than that. You know, and feeling like it wasn't serving them. Mm. And was it my place to only, like, to almost be selfish and say, but I really need your money. 
And so there was like a small minor conflict in my head of how to reconcile Mm -hmm. making people feel like that or am I actually being clinically helping them and their bodies. And um, I had a really solid, good conversation where um, my mentor said, quit being stupid. You're providing them with exactly what they require. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh. Right. And it changed my whole entire practice. How? In the way I held the space mm. for everybody that came to the table and be like, no, I really could care less if you're fluffy, if you took a shower. Like, honest to God, I could care less if you shaved your legs or anything. Honest to God. I, like, that's so not important. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. That's what's important. How do you feel? That's what's important. Yeah. Like, can you let go of all of this stuff long enough to find you again mm. and feel you? Yep. You're not a feeding utensil. I know you're breastfeeding. For the love of God, it's that child is not on you right now. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. And I had a woman weep. Because nobody had asked her? Nobody asked her. She's like, I had an interview with a pregnant woman who said, who said exactly that. She said, the first time somebody, yeah, yeah, she said, the first time somebody asked me how I was postpartum, she said, how are you feeling? And it stopped me in my tracks. She goes, no one else had asked me. And I asked her why that is. And she goes, because we're not supposed to feel, we're supposed to look. Yeah. People care about how you look, not about how you feel. And when I did hospice work last year, it was, it was very similar, even though you're working with end of life kind of things I would always ask how do you feel Mm. are you okay Mm -hmm. and they look at well yeah you know we just got done doing you know our interview with our nurse we're fine you know we're getting more I was like no are you okay Mm. and they would look at me and they're like "Mm." and we'd have really great conversation afterwards and um, it just reiterated again you know why do we have to look why aren't we asking really no where's this Mm. feel come from what is that touch doing and creating in your mind I want to propel more this conversation of what's the story an individual's story wrapped around touch Mm. and what does that really mean and why do we block it out yeah. You know, how much more are we supposed to block out? And yet there's this self-help movement and self-care movement has really taken this huge wave mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. But we're so stupid and disconnected from our bodies. It's almost comical. It's just like, okay, but people can't sit for a half hour in my sauna without a device in their hand. They just can't be by themselves mm-hmm. and reconciling with themselves what's going on mm-hmm. it's because we're pain avoidant we are really and the, and we have we have been I, was, I think that's one of the reasons and we've been sold the story uh, that to touch it is going to be too much you know that we're and it's to your point it's not and it's often made that way by the assistive touch of somebody else right like I can I can relieve part of your burden just through the power of touch, yeah, you know, a to, hug can do a lot of yeah, things to help you find it and release it. Yeah, 
and and it's wild, you know. And I had gotten told, um, you know, you're not successful at this as a business person. You're not you're not making tons of money and mm-hmm. what have you. And it's so not about it. I mean, that's a that's a happy perk. Of course, people have to eat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I gotta pay the bills. Yes. However, at the same time, it's. Um, really having people understand and grasp and know compassionate touch is like the first step like the being able to exhale mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know um, the movie was perfect waiting to exhale because she finally hit that moment where she was like you know what mm-hmm. I've been holding it in yeah. all this time Yoga did that for me as well, where it yeah. was just like, oh, yeah, no, I can't get in that position. But if I exhale, I can come closer. Yep. And yeah. that's okay. You know, and it was just this wave of um, getting people to understand that mm-hmm. and kind of be like, no, look, it really doesn't matter if that feels good and right for you. So be it. Well, um, God, I could, we had like, we literally had like four different places where I was like, we could do a whole podcast on that or a whole <laughs> podcast on that. <laughs> I know. So um, I would love to consider us having a conversation again sometime. But um, I really want to thank you for the work that you're doing and the way that you're doing it. Because I think the more that I lean into this work, um, the more that I'm, I'm convinced that the solution is radical embodiment. It's about this invitation to be completely present in your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and oddly enough, in that experience, <clears throat> for me, I've discovered a different sense of spirit because I am conscious of being embodied. It's weird. You would think you would just then become conscious of your body, but it just feels bigger than that to me now. And, um... And it feels bigger to the people that I invite to it. Like, you know, there are these moments where I talk to people about body trust and they're, you can see it. Like I said, it's like ancient wisdom that they're hearing again for the first time. And so I think that all the words in the world are great and they can invite people, but there is no substitute for being touched. Not. And so the world cannot get enough of you, of what you're doing and how you're doing it because... Uh, I talk a lot about this being invitation to a chorus of courage. Uh, the chorus is not just voices, you know. Mm-hmm. Voices are important, and the conversation is critical. But then for people to be embodied and experience embodiment. It's the action component Yep. that a lot of people are like, well, I'll do it, and then they don't follow through. Mm-hmm. And so there's something um, pretty awesome to be trusted with, a body on a table that can be and that is willing and choosing to mm-hmm. be exposed yeah. in however that looks mm-hmm. um, and those are the cool conversations yeah you know and having the conversations and people the light bulbs turn on going you know this happened and now I'm left with this feeling mm-hmm. and I don't know why mm-hmm it's like, oh, but this is just a different reality for your body. Right. Yeah. And that's so much softer and kinder and gentler to wrap your brain around and be like, oh, yeah. Then going, it's a restriction. Right. It's something that's not possible. Right. And stuff. And so I, I think it has to be a marriage of the, the, two. the voice mm-hmm. and 
the actual physical action. I agree. So it's a good thing that there are other people in the tribe, right? Yes. So thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you for sharing your story and totally for being vulnerable and honest. And um, and we will see what the future holds for the for the tribe, right? Yes. All right. Thanks, Kim. All right, friends, that's it for our time with Kim. I so wish you could have been in the room with us when she talked about her first experience of compassionate touch. There was this visible shift in her person as she moved from recounting the experience of uncovering the heaviness and the anger and the resentment. As she moved toward this sense of being loved and held and seen and known, you could literally just watch it on her face. You could watch it in her shoulders, across her chest, in the way she sat up taller in her chair. And as a woman with a lifetime history of being a bit disembodied, I know for sure that I have neglected the power of touch, but there's no shortage of research on this. We know that if infants aren't touched, they die. We also have emerging research about the fact that loneliness is an equal predictor of death, as is smoking. Loneliness and smoking. That tells me everything I've ever needed to know about how we crave connection. And the reason why we crave connection is because we need it in order to survive. I'm hopeful that Kim's words today make all of us more mindful about the power that we hold in our hands, about the ways that we can use those hands to heal the people around us. I am so grateful to Kim for the work she's doing. And I don't know about you, but I kind of want to go hop on her table. If you think you might want to hear more stories from women about bodies, about beauty, and about belonging, make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. If you love today's episode, take a second and leave a review so that other people can find us. You can find out more information about the beautiful project in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today and lending your voice to our chorus of courage as we create a world where women belong with substance and with strength. I'll see you all soon.